0: You should be a monster. Because everyone says, well, you should be harmless. Hmm. You don't want to be too aggressive. You don't want to be too assertive. you want to take a back seat. No. You should be a monster. And then you should learn how to control, 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 you should learn how to control. You should learn how to control. You should
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us as we crack open another episode of the Undisclosed Agents podcast. Today on the podcast, we got a chance to sit down with Brian Olson. Brian is a 15-year firefighter from Idaho. Brian really doesn't need an introduction, but I'll hit a few of the highlights for you anyway. Brian teaches with Brothers in Battle. He's a founding member of the Firefighter Rescue Survey. and He's also a Georgia smoke diver, number 1091, Idaho number three. This was an amazing opportunity for us to have a conversation with someone whose work in the fire service has always been inspirational. Brian has been an unofficial mentor to me for quite some time, and to have him join us on the podcast was bitching. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Now let's get after it. Right on. We're here today with
2: Brian Olson. So Brian, uh, thanks for coming, man. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself
0: and uh, what brought you here today? Uh, I'm, I'm a 15-year firefighter for the Eagle Fire Department in Eagle, Idaho. Uh, Riding right the the seat. Uh, on a truck company, well, technically it's a Quint, but, you know, um, <laughs> we cross man a heavy rescue, a squad, a Quint, a brush rig. Um, we got all kinds of stuff going on. We have four stations, uh, three engine houses, and then uh, the station that I work at, the truck and the heavy rescue. Uh, yeah, and I've been in the backseat for 15 years, most of that time spent uh, at the station I'm at now uh eagle is a little suburb of boise in idaho Uh, we have about a little over forty thousand people i think uh, in our fire district at this point so uh yeah that's the department i work for Uh, i have a wife we've been together for 21 years we've been married for 16 years and we got two boys that are 15 and 13 so we're right in the teenage boy years which are pretty awesome have a lot of fun with them uh we have a dog a black lab stanley who's also we consider one of our one of our kids uh yeah and i'm third generation idahoan grew up on a farm uh my dad was a farmer my mom was a landscaper lots of time spent outside working with my hands you know i'm just being outside being in the dirt that kind of thing so uh, the fire service ended up being a good fit I wanted to be a professional baseball player that's what I spent the first uh like 20 years of my life well from five to 25 that's about all I cared about was playing baseball and then that fell through because it ended up not being good enough and was just working excavation with my dad and yeah I I wouldn't say I didn't end up in the fire service by accident but it was something I never really thought of doing even one time and actually I'd I had signed up to go to uh, a school of ministry Um, and that's when, you know, uh, God just kind of told me you're going to be a firefighter. And I was like, what, (laughs) you know, and at the time it didn't make any sense because I'd never even considered that one time I'd, didn't know anything about the fire department, but uh, I think it was a good choice because I would have been a fucking train wreck of a pastor, I think. <laughs> uh, so uh, I swear a little too much. I, I yeah, I would have had to have a very special congregation, I think. And I think I ended up with it, which is uh, you know other firefighters. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in the fire service and started volunteering at Eagle. Uh, volunteered for about two and a half years, I think, and then I uh, got hired full time in. Two thousand twelve. So yeah, I'm just about math is hard, right? Uh twelve years full time. Yeah, in Mar in next March. So right on. Do you yeah. guys still have volunteers? Uh no, we don't. Actually, we uh I think five or six years ago we went to just a full time fire department. And it has its pluses and minuses. I I kind of liked having volunteers because uh, that meant there was always people that were wanting to train and, you know, people trying to become firefighters full time. So it, it kept the training culture really healthy when we had volunteers, because you would have somebody show up, you know, to be the fourth or the fifth uh, on the truck at night and they had stuff in a task, but that needed to be done. So we would make that happen. Um Uh, When it went away, you know, I think we all, everyone in the department kind of like took a deep breath for a little while because it was like we didn't have that um, constant training anymore. But uh, yeah, and it was an easy way for us to control the culture of the department because for, um, I can't remember exactly when that changed, but a handful of years uh, before we got rid of the volunteers, Um, it changed. But before that you had to be an Eagle fire volunteer to get hired by the Eagle fire department. They did not hire anyone from the outside. And so you basically had a two or three year interview uh, for every person that got hired there. Right. Or even more in some cases. So there wasn't, you knew who you were hiring. So, which was a very easy way to control the culture a little bit of like, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of surprises of like, you know, somebody from the outside that you didn't really know. So that, I mean, to me, that was kind of a positive, but uh, we've been very lucky since then. And the people that we have hired from the outside have all been, you know, pretty stellar. So, um, yeah, no longer a combination department. We have uh, 17 people on every day if everyone's at work, four-person staffing uh, across the board if everyone's there, which is rare, but minimum four on the truck and uh, minimum three on the engine companies. Nice. Do you guys have a minimum staffing clause,
2: uh, like in your contract? Like our, uh, we have to have a certain number of firefighters on per day.
0: Um, yeah, I mean other, we have, so we would have to have, if what would it be? 13 people a day. If we were at the minimum four, three, 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 and three. Yeah, that, that sounds so, right to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, yeah, we, we, that's usually our minimum. Every, you know, w- once in a great while, some really unforeseen circumstance, we might end up with three on the truck, but it's if it happens once a year, you know, pretty rare. Um, it's very rare. We don't have a lot of forced overtime at all. Um, I've never been forced to work overtime before in 15 years or. Twelve years full time, so that that really doesn't happen. Either. You just made so. a lot
2: of guys cry in
0: northern Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, that's the name of the game out yeah. here, baby. Yeah.
1: Well, Brian, when uh we talk to everybody that's coming on the podcast, they usually try and get a, a list of things that they want to talk about, some topics that would be, you know, passionate to them to get some get some stuff out of them. You sent me a really awesome list and I'm excited to dive into it. Most of the time, not most of the time, but a lot of the time on this podcast, we end up talking about more of the leadership stuff and kind of um from that angle but you sent me a lot of like task level stuff which i really want to get into and the first thing you sent me you just put training so we've been talking a little bit about it but let's let's get into that what what did you want to talk about when you wrote down training
0: yeah uh that's because i don't know much about leadership all i know about leadership is the only way to lead people is by example Sounds Um, like. Thank you you for coming to my TED talk. Yeah, you got got (laughs) it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, uh, training is definitely my passion in the fire service, uh, specifically search, forcible entry, truck work in general. And yeah, part of that is just, um, you know, I didn't like coming up in my fire service career. You know, it's like every fire department I've been around, there are people that are really into training and there's some who aren't, same with crews. And so I I spent a pretty significant amount of time in the bay by myself, just working on skills. And and that's not all just because my crew necessarily didn't want to be out there, but uh, I started doing that when I was a kid playing baseball. Uh, My dad, if you could talk to him about all these funny stories of me doing stuff, trying to... You know, throwing parachutes behind me, trying to get faster at running and like all these things, like whatever it was, you know, when I was a kid, I was just, that's what I did. So training was my thing, even with baseball, it was all about uh, preparation. So when I got into the fire service, it was, it felt very familiar. It was a new thing I had to learn. So spend a lot of time in the bay by myself, training and basically, you know, being a guinea pig and uh, trying to figure out what's the best way to train um and trying to learn all this stuff so uh, i have a lot of ideas about training and like where we fall short in the fire service what we're good at in the fire service um so yeah it's um yeah
1: what are we doing good let's start there let's start 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 positive positive? okay that's
0: that's against my nature a little bit yeah yeah (laughs) 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 it's against my nature to start positive for sure um Uh, yeah, I think what we do well in the fire service is we, we do work on a lot of skills. Um, you know, you know, things like you see forcible entry, like 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have seen, it seems like now, like almost everybody has a forcible entry door, at least in their fire department somewhere. And so we've made these strides on skills like that, or like, um, in a lot of cases, masking up, I mean, things that, I think social media has a lot to do with people see a, a video on social media and it's a skill. it's throwing a 35 by herself or forcing a door or whatever. And we kind of, that seems to have grown across the fire service, at least what you can see from the outside or traveling around. Um, so I feel like we do an okay job with that, um, but a lot of that is left up to, you know, do you have the props or not? Do you have people who have that experience or not? Um, so, yeah, we're okay at that, I guess. <laughs> I'm turning <laughs> a negative already. Uh, uh, we're okay at that. Um, okay, switch. Yeah. What's next? What were we going <laughs> right? I see
1: you jumping at the bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, where I think we fall short in the fire service is, and this is just through my own experience of realizing where I fall, have fallen short on scenes is we don't necessarily train those skills up to the level of stress that we see in on the actual fire ground. And so, yeah, we can, we can maybe throw the ladder, you know, and bare pavement against the training tower or whatever. But when you go, you get on scene and there's fences and, and trees and you know all of these other things that are going on, all these other stressors around you. Um, it's it's really hard to uh, replicate that same ease of performing that skill that you do on the drill ground. So, I think we fall short in we we mostly feel like we're pretty good at these skills, but we never really test them under stressful circumstances to know that yeah, that actually is a skill that we have, and not just um, you know I. I have nothing against pulling a hose line in an empty parking lot. Those reps are excellent, but at some point we have to grow beyond that and make it more challenging so it more replicates what we find on scene. So kind of a quality over quantity as far as the reps that we are doing with training. Um, I feel like we miss out on a lot of um, multi-company training in the fire service Um, Whether that's everyone getting together and doing, you know, a fire and actually having three or four rigs on scene going through a drill or just everybody getting the opportunity to do the same drill. Um, Sometimes we fall short on that. I think we miss opportunities for that. And sometimes it's because we're busy, but I feel like we got to set time aside to make those things happen if we want to get better. Because, yeah, you might have one company that is dialed in and training all the time. But if the one, you know, two miles down the road is on the other side of the planet of that, well, when you show up on scene, it's not going to be congruent like we want it to be. So, um, what else, what else is, are we falling short at? <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I, I, I hear you on that. You definitely don't want your, your first pressure test to be on, on a fire scene, Yeah, you know? So, uh, just putting, putting some clocks to things we were talking earlier. We went, went out and had some breakfast and we were talking about that. Just anything you can do to add that level of stress in your training, I think is, is uh, crucial for you guys out there listening, you know, put, put a clock to it, um, wake up in the middle of the night and do something. Yeah. That's something that we don't do in the fire service ever that we actually talked to, uh, chief Riley about a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that he said is like, go out in your district, your first do at 1130 at night. Because every building's parking lot looks different at 1130 at night, right? So I think that's something that we need to get get better at is not just training, you know, in 10 o'clock in the morning when, it,
0: when the weather's nice out. Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, we, we do a pretty good job of that in my department. When we, like when you get those acquired structures that are sometimes hard to get a hold of, or even if you have, we don't have. Really, a training ground at my department. So you know, we got to have those acquired structures for that training. And yeah, those night drills—they change everything. Like, where are you going to throw the ladder to get to the roof? Um, all, it just looks different, like you're saying at night. Um, yeah, spooky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> scary. <laughs> yeah, stop screaming! I'm scared too. That's my favorite uh, fire service sticker. Um, but also, just as far as stress goes, like not only putting a time to something, but um, stress is such an individual thing of what stresses people out. Sometimes it's being in that testing environment and getting timed. Sometimes, if uh, someone is not in the greatest physical shape, uh, and you ask them to do ten burpees and then do something fireground related, yeah, if you're in shape, maybe that doesn't stress you out very much. But if you're not, you're gonna feel like you're dying. You know, if you've never done a burpee before and then you put your gear on and do that, so um, those stress those things that we can add as stress are, can be different for each person. I mean, you can do even something that is not skill le- or a task level related. Like, imagine if you walked into your station and you're a company officer and, you know, right after lunch, maybe when everyone's getting ready to take a nap, you go up to the firefighter and say, hey, uh, you got 45 minutes to put on a half hour class on standpipes to everybody the stress level for that person is probably going to go through the roof because, you know, the number one fear of most people is public speaking. So like just little things like that are, are in your captain's promotional process, same thing. They show up to do an interview and you go, hey, uh, you got half an hour to prepare a 15-minute class for this interview panel on whatever topic it is. And that's going to, for a lot of people, that'll make them stress. So um, we have to, you know, inoculate ourselves to the stress. And the only way to to do that is to practice it. Um, and it goes across all parts of your life too. I mean, if you get, if you start uh, doing this stress in, stress inoculation training, uh, it's going to help you in your family life. It's going to help you, you know, in your life away from the fire department as much as it will on scene because you'll just be able to handle that stress better. Uh, it's not going to you know jump out of nowhere and bite you it's like oh yeah i've been here before i i practice this i know how to get my uh breathing under control and all those types of things so
2: yeah, even hearing the word burpee makes me stressed out. Yeah. So, <laughs> we
0: we'll check yeah. it out.
1: I'm going to tie this into jujitsu again for all the listeners out there. Gotcha again. <laughs> okay. It's one of those things I always talk about with jujitsu, right? I, I practice stress inoculation on quite a regular basis, not in my gear and not pulling hose or whatever the case may be. But I've been in a tight spot. I've had some pretty dire consequences on the line and had to use my brain to get out of them, not just my brawn.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, so I think that was a good that's a good habit to be in is have something in your life. You know that you like to hit the river and be rafting. I'm sure you've been in some hairy situations as fun as it is, but I'm sure you've seen some hairy stuff doing that, which makes you have to think on your feet in a stressful situation, right? So you're just keeping that, like you said, in your life in different facets.
0: Yeah. I mean, my limited experience with jujitsu, it's very stressful to get choked out on a daily basis. So that's what my experience was like. Um, And yeah, the rafting thing, you know, when you're looking at a river that is class five and the consequences of falling out of the raft are, you know, realistically injury or death, um, you know, and and a lot of times much more severe consequences than we can even, you know, or more likely than we have at fires. Uh, Yeah, it's a stress training and you go through all those same principles of getting, you, you know, your arousal under control and keeping yourself mellow and using breathing techniques, at least as I'm doing praying, you know, whether you are someone who likes to pray or you meditate or whatever, um, all that mental rehearsal and stuff that goes into that. The, the thing I really enjoy about, uh, whitewater in particular is I can go do that whenever I want. Um, I can go and, and test that stress on myself whenever I want. I unfortunately can't do that can't go to a fire anytime I want to. I wish I could, but that's just another avenue uh, for me to be able to practice these skills that I'm trying to use on the fire ground to keep my stress levels under control. Because again, if if the skill doesn't hold up under pressure, it's not really a skill that you have. It only matters when you're in the stressful environment. Yeah, I feel
2: like that it's so underrated, or at least maybe under, not as well understood uh, for guys that Everything doesn't have to be um, fire service related, right? Everything doesn't have to be on the training ground, throwing ladders. That's the only way you get better at any of this stuff. Uh, Having something in your life that's difficult will help you get
1: better at all of this
0: stuff. Yeah, get married. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) that's realistically, (laughs) yeah. You you know, your spouse, uh, your kids, I'm sure most of us, um, that have kids would say that uh, they'd much rather deal with the stress of the fire ground than when your kids are going nuclear, you know, on a daily basis or whatever. So, um, but yeah, don't uh, don't just limit yourself to, you know, your occupation. You know, if, if 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like the old backdraft thing, if you're always a fireman, I feel like you're limiting, you know, a more complete person that you could be, you know, when and this is something I've struggled with a lot that I've try to get better at is like, when you're at the station, you're a firefighter. When you're at home, you're a husband, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. And that's something that has taken years of dedication for me to try to get better at. But yeah, don't just limit it. It's okay that if, you know, you love the fire service and that's who you you feel like you are and it's your calling, but don't just limit yourself to that one thing because, you know, one day, you know, it's probably going to end. Um, even if you're the most badass fireman on the face of the planet, uh, the day you retire, there's going to be someone else sitting in your seat and that's just a fact. And so if you've left, you know, uh, a bunch of burning bridges between you and your family because you sacrificed your family on the altar of the fire service, it's going to suck when it's all over and you walk out of the station and there's nobody waiting for you there. So don't just limit yourself to that. Have all these different areas of your life where you're trying to be, you know, as successful as you can be. So
1: you're doing the Carlos Madrid thing where you're reading the list before I get to. (laughs) We're gonna get. We're gonna get to that. Okay, all right. (laughs) Scratch that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just
2: kidding. But time's coming for us all for sure. Like Uh, no doubt. You know, we're not. We're not going to be able to do this forever. Not none of us. And uh, yeah, time is coming
1: for us all. I was going to tie it into that being another one of those stress inoculations for me. I got into this game a little late, right? My time as a fireman is is limited. I've only got X amount of years until I'm too old to do this. So I felt this the pressure of time. It might not have been stress inoculation for a certain skill right now, but it was stress inoculation for me to become proficient at this craft right now. Because my brother had been in the game for a long time before I got here. My mentors, like Brian Hunt, our partner, and the other guys that I run around with, Boggs and Mason, these guys, had been in for a long time. And the pressure that I felt to live up to their standards made me start stress inoculating right away. Sure. So I had to live up to that. But going back to the to the performance under stress, I find some of the times like when we go out and train, right? We're not always in our pack. We're not always clipping in we're not always doing it like practicing like we play like we like to say that a lot but Mm -hmm. we get out and do trainings and we'll stretch hose with just our drops on but no pack and then we get to go stretch hose and it happens to be that time where we're going to do the shoulder load right now it's caught on our bottle because we haven't been training to inoculate under the stress of that and we know every mistake right that heart rate's going up Mm -hmm. adrenaline dumps are starting to spike we're burning that cognitive capital and our performance past that point starts to decline pretty rapidly so i think you're definitely hitting a hitting a, a note with that that performance under stress we need to do that all the time it can't only be on the fire ground
0: yeah absolutely and and it's okay I mean i'll i'll go out and and if i'm working on a particular part of a skill like maybe i don't have every you know all my gear on but more often than not i try to I try to have my pack on, or I, I obviously do a lot of stuff on air. If uh, you see the stuff I post on social media, um, I took a, about a year off of posting any fire stuff and and started up recently again. But I try to I try to make it um, you know as realistic as I can given the then the resources I have available. But uh, the other part of that is just trying to avoid training scars, um, you know, if you're not wearing that gear and stuff like that. Like, and every time you go out to practice throwing ladders, you're not wearing your pack. Well, the first time you have to go to a fire and throw that ladder and your mask is swinging around and it gets caught between the rungs or whatever. Like, those are things that you probably could have helped mitigate beforehand if you would have been training with all your stuff on versus, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to throw ladders. Yeah, maybe you put your uh, bunker coat on and your helmet and gloves and that's it. Um, There's all these little habits that we build that we have to be very intentional with when we're doing those skills to make sure we don't end up with these uh, weird training scars that show up at very inappropriate times on the fire ground. The the biggest one that I see, excuse me, is uh, guys masking up
2: like we build the worst training scars for people coming out of academies, put your gear on the ground in front of you, fold it up put it all on from that one position. And then it's like, well, now go throw a ladder on a fire scene. Now mask up when, before you climb the ladder, it's like, you'll see guys taking their stuff off and setting it on the ground and shit like that. You know, it just it
0: well, and not only that it's, and part of that is too is masking up with your gloves on. You know, uh, I didn't start the fire service masking up with my gloves on. And a matter of fact, I didn't want to even wear structured gloves because it's like growing up farm on a farm Baseball player, no batting gloves, no gloves whatsoever. Gloves were uh, something that you were like uh, for sissy yeah, hands, basically, right? Yeah. yeah, and then and then uh, you know get into the fire service, and then I, I want to give uh, Trust Cody Trustyell credit for that of like coming from that culture uh, in the FDNY where he was at in special operations of like, no, you you got to get turtled up, you want everything on and be ready to go the second you get off that rig. And so I had to learn how to do mask up with gloves on, and it wasn't easy at first. But realistically, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people are just, uh, you know, not scared, but just, you know, they don't want to go through the training to do it. But like in, in reality, like you spend one day on it, you can get proficient enough to at least be able to do it, not under stress, right? You can get the steps down, and then you continue to train on it, and you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of time and you add a little bit of stress every time, whether that's, you know, timing yourself and then trying to cut that time down. You know, you start with, okay, 45 seconds and then you go to 30 and then 20 and then 15. And I really think if you're masking up with your gloves on in under 15 seconds, you're doing really damn good. Um, You can get that figured out in, you know, a handful of tours, right? If you do it the right way. And what's funny to me is people would be like, they don't want to mask up with their gloves on and then they're going to get off the rig and then they go to the front door. Well, I've never seen anyone stop at the front door and put their gloves on and then force the door. I don't think that's ever happened. And it's like, if you cut your hand, forcing a door, or you baseball bat, swing the door, or whatever, like you're, that's it. You're done. You know, or you, you don't know, nobody puts their gloves on before they throw the ladder and then throw the ladder and then mask up. Like that's not how it works. So You know, even if a lot of times people are like, well, I'm the driver, well, put your gloves, luckily I don't have to drive very often anymore, Uh, put your gloves on the dash when you get out of the rig, put your gloves on and go do your thing, and then, you know, maybe you don't need them if, God forbid, you're on the pump panel, you know, that kind of thing, but uh, you can put them right there on the dash and throw them on when you get off. If you're the captain, you can have one glove on in the rig and still have your hand available to push the buttons like you need to. You know, I've always joked with my captain of making him a, like the old snow mitts, make him a little <laughs> one finger, you know, <laughs> flap the top of the finger over so he can still push the buttons and then flap it back over and then go do his thing. But it's like, yeah, if you're not going to, you don't want to have something as silly as not wearing a glove and forcing a door and cutting your hand. Or, I mean, I've taught, I don't know how many forcible entry classes. You always see somebody cut their hand, smash their hand or whatever. And it's like, you know, if you got your gloves on, you know, you don't have to worry about it. So you're ready to go. All you got to do is mask up and you can go inside.
2: And I'll tell you right now, the slowest part of everybody's mask up, of everybody's system, the slowest part is putting on your gloves. Everyone seems to get hung up on, on putting their gloves on.
0: Yeah, there, nothing gives you a time and advantage on the fire ground of getting in the front door in front of somebody else, like being good at masking up. Uh, I'm not trying to like seem really cool or anything, but it, I can just picture fires in my head where people were on their knees masking up, leading up to the front door, and you just walk by them and you're putting your mask on and you're the first one in the front door, even if you know, you're know a third due. so. Uh, my goal is always to be the first one through the front door that's what i want to be and nothing gives you an advantage like that of just being really good at masking up if you can hit that 10 second mark routinely I, you just have you know because we always think we're, we're way better than we are and i everyone should have a camera on when they're going in whether that's your own little gopro or or you buy one of the fire cams or whatever because you video those things and you're like, I'm pretty good at masking up. And then I see a video of myself and I was like, that was not good at all. (laughs) You know, you think you're moving a lot faster than you really are. So when you, when you realize that and you get some self-reflection and you start working on it, like nothing gives you an advantage, like being able to mask up quickly. And you just, you see it all the time. It's like people are, again, that academy mode of dropping down to your knees to mask up. Well, who said you had to get on your knees to mask up? Nobody did, but that's just what we do over and over again, right? So, um, yeah, masking with your gloves on. That's just an easy one, easy training scar to like. If you can fix that and be able to mask up while you're walking or while you're standing at the front door or whatever, you're going to have a huge advantage over uh, a lot of people if you want to get in the building quick.
1: It's an Pardon me. I don't know why I do that every time I do this podcast. Like All of a sudden, I have this crappy throat all the time. Yeah, we know. Yeah, so do all the listeners. Anyway, um, it's interesting you talk about the body camera, right? Everybody should have one, right? I got a fire cam, and I love running it when the battery lasts. Fire cam, fix your shit. I don't know why it does what it does. But um, if you want to sponsor the podcast, we'll talk good about you. (laughs) (laughs) um i've got a fire cam and i run it and it's funny you look at those videos and i've asked people before like what if they made us wear body cams like police officers what would your what story would your camera tell and you say looking at it you're like oh yeah my mind i probably mask up pretty good and you've seen videos where you go no i did not and we've all got all of those that run helmet cams right we turn them on in the rig because we want the full picture and you go to mask up right i hang my helmet from my my elbow so for that 15 to 20 seconds, I'm not going to say 10, I'm just going to tell the truth, 15 okay. to 20 second time frame, right? My camera's upside down swinging around and then it goes back on and I love watching it to count, to like hold myself accountable for that mask up time. But then you watch through it where I'll watch a video from five years ago on a fire where I loved it five years ago. I was really happy with that that camera footage. There's fire in it and we we're doing shit or forcing doors or whatever. And you, as you progress in your fire career and as you hold yourself more accountable in training and hold yourself more accountable as a firefighter, you go back sometimes and look at it and critique yourself so badly. You're like, man, I, but it's a good thing because you know you've grown from that point. But I wish everybody would grasp on reviewing your own footage. I don't want to wear a camera to catch you sucking. Yeah. I want to wear a camera to catch me sucking
0: yeah that's the that's the point right And it's like and you don't have to use the footage for anything other than your own personal growth. That's all it's for right and and well what about Instagram? Yeah well, okay you want to talk about like uh, you know picking yourself apart like start posting videos of yourself doing something on Instagram.
2: Yeah, I mean,
0: oh yeah. I mean, as much as I, you know, I do post stuff on uh, Instagram. I used to do a lot of stuff on Facebook and then I I deleted it, but um, that made me a better firefighter because the number of reps that it takes to get something that I would put out there for everyone to ridicule it's fairly high, right? So it's like, it's like this thing of like, oh shit, man, I got to fucking do it again because I screwed this part up, you know? And, and yeah, there is value in showing when you mess up, but like, I really hate the trolls and I I, I just, and so it's just like, yeah, I'm going to do it again and I'm going to get it perfect. And if it takes me two more times to get it perfect, I'm going to get it perfect because those are good reps for me and it's making me better. And then, yeah, you put it out there and just, wait for the wolves to show up, you know, most of the time it's stupid shit that they're saying anyway. So there's no point in even uh, going back and forth with them. But, um, but yeah, the camera thing is, yeah, you don't have to post any, you know, departments getting this thing of like, we're going to get sued. Well, don't, you don't have to post the video. It's for your members to get better. You know, I think departments should buy the cameras and say, hey, you're the captain on this rig, you're wearing a camera. You're the firefighter, you're wearing a camera. And that way, training-wise, you have all this footage of like what is actually happening on scene. Because again, we we think we're better at these skills than we are. And we show up on scene and we're like, Ew. that did not happen how I thought it did. Because again, we don't train to that level of stress. And so when you talk to firefighters like, hey, what happened on that fire? And- and there, a lot of times there's these huge swaths of time that are missing and they don't remember things that happen, you know? And I think it's because we chunk these things up and we're under that level of stress, you know, our brain like chunks these things up and we miss things and we were doing stuff and we had no idea what we were doing. Well, if you have that camera on, you're going to, you're going to then know, you know? So it's really good for self-reflection, you know? So
1: I think there's some. Some fear, possibly, from the department angle, and maybe chief, you can comment on this. I think there's maybe some fear where we think, hey, if we camera all our guys up, like, what are we going to see? And then are are we going to see something that's going to need to be addressed? The answer is yes, mm-hmm. right? Everybody is. There's sure. no department that's perfect. There's no firefighter that's perfect. We're going to see some things that must be addressed. Now we're going to have to train on it. Now we're going to have to pay overtime. Now we're going to have to do this. Now we're going to. So it's like, mm, let's just like keep getting lucky yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i such
0: a, a good
2: strategy <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i've been a huge uh, proponent and pusher of the department purchasing cameras for everyone because i feel the same exact way every single riding position should have a helmet cam on on every at least every working call not just fires but like actual you know any mm-hmm. kind of multi um, company call that we go on because for the training aspect of it mm-hmm. and the the argument I've always heard uh, from the administrative side is, well, that's all discoverable evidence now. So if there's something that happens and it's like, so we're not out here breaking the law. Like people yeah. are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Like, if and we, if we
1: are, we should get caught
2: for it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, it, if it was something that terrible, then like I would hope that we had the evidence of it.
0: Yeah. But,
2: uh, I yeah, just, it's like
0: the, it's the boogeyman, you know, Yeah, it's the boogeyman getting sued. But yeah, if you, I can imagine if I was a training chief, man, I would just feel like I would want that because that's going to give me the most realistic picture of what we really need to work on. Absolutely. Is it, and you know, like our battalion chiefs have a camera on the dash of their rig and when it works, you know, it's a GoPro, if it doesn't shut off weird or whatever, we, we do typically get some footage, but you can pretty much guarantee that battalion chief's going to park and who's going to park right in front of him? the ladder truck, you know? (laughs) And so it's like, oh, that's cool view of the side of the truck for 20 minutes. But, um, but yeah, we got to have that footage on the interior too. You know, it's just, it's just extremely invaluable. So.
2: Yeah. I talk about it all the time with guys. If the department's not going to buy it for you, you should definitely invest in yourself and, And just, just have that. It'll just help you in your career.
0: Yeah. Go pros aren't that expensive. Yeah. And even if you're not going to do it on, on calls, like, uh, video yourself training, you know, and you don't have to post it. Like, whatever. Social media is dumb. Don't post it. Uh, but it's like game tape, you know, like for sure. So many firefighters are in love with football, (coughs) right? Like, or sports in general. It's like, do you really think those guys aren't watching video of themselves do the skills that they're paid to do? Like, why aren't we doing the same thing? Because you watch that video and you're like, oh, you know, like, oh, that door force went good. And then you realize, oh, I didn't even have my hand on the forks. Like, I wasn't even using the full leverage of the tool. Like, that's a little thing that makes a huge difference. And I didn't catch it because I can't have an out-of-body experience, you know, if I'm out there forcing doors by myself and, and pick that up. So, like, yeah, this video yourself and you know you don't have to do it all the time but every once in a while like check in and be like oh yeah i'm still i'm in a good spot throwing the ladder or whatever it is so yeah yeah i couldn't agree more
2: the the more uh, our jiu-jitsu coach talks about it too like i believe john danaher is the one that famously said it but you want to get better at anything film yourself doing it you'll be able to see every tiny mistake that you make and then you'll be able to
1: address them and fix it i agree 100 percent um that this is a great lead into, to uh one of the other topics you sent me. You sent me search slash forcible entry. I think anybody who has followed you or is is into what you're doing understands that those are two of your big passions, two of the things that um definitely for me, uh when I was, you know, following you before we knew each other and met each other. You'd always been one of my kind of unofficial fire service mentors, and the search stuff was really big. And then the forcible entry stuff was really big with you. So tell me how that became a big focus point for you. Talk about yeah.
0: That. So uh, with the forcible entry, it was um not to go too deep into storyland here, but um, I think I had maybe like a year or so of volunteer time on, and uh, me and my buddy Ben Moores, who if you follow me, we raft together all the time. Uh, we, we went to this forcible entry class in Seattle and we left, we drove all night long. We slept in the car on the street out in front of the training center and then went and did this 10 hour class and drove all the way all night home to get home because we had to work the next day. Um, But at that class, one, one thing they had that I'd never used before was door props so when I got taught force of entry, it was like, here's the IFSTA chapter in the book and good luck.
1: With the guy pushing the, the forks oh, the yeah, wrong yeah, way. Sure. They, yeah. They've
0: fixed yeah. it now. In addition yeah. seven, yeah. they fixed it. Sweet. <laughs> all is saved. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Force of entry is good. That's or, or all good check now. it off the list.
2: Uh, <laughs> the way to be IFSTA. Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, I, we didn't have any door props in my department. So we went there and it's, it's actually really funny, like at that class and this is before brothers in battle existed this is before uh you know myself and uh, my bc ben Rosemon, we had a little training company with a couple guys called refined by fire training both prior to brothers in battle but like we went to this class and cody trust Trail was there and uh jesse avery was there who was uh, another of the co-founders of brothers in battle um and then like Rob Fisher, like there was like six or eight guys that ended up teaching for Brothers in Battle that were all at this class together. And it was a fool's class in Seattle. And like, that was the first time by like, coding them have like taught this stuff or whatever. And so Ben and I drove all night to this class, took the class, got our minds completely blown because we'd never even forced a door prop before. And then drove all night home. And then on the way home, it was like, I got to build one of these fucking door props. Like I have to, and I'm not a good welder. I learned how to weld on a farm, which means you weld it until a nuclear bomb can't break it apart. That's basically how I got taught to weld. Um, And I built, I talked a lot to Andrew Broussard, actually. He was, he really encouraged me like, yeah, I mean, he showed me pictures and he's like, just build one. He goes, you'll learn a ton about it. Just building the prop. And so I went for it and I built the worst fucking door you could possibly, <laughs> I mean, it was, and it was all scrap metal. It was bad, but then my, the next volunteer Academy that came on at Eagle fire, their first day learning force of entry, they got to force somewhat of a door prop, right? The They, was, they got the Frank, that's literally what it was called. The Frankendor. door. Uh, yeah. They got to force the door prop. And so then it was like, okay, all right, sweet. And then you build another one and it's a little bit different, a little better. You built another one and it was a little bit better. And then I, uh, recruited, uh, who is like my senior man, Zach Wagner, and he's a real welder. He did that before the fire service. And then we built one together and then we landed on this one design that, you know, we've built and sold like, I think 20 something of these doors now. And, uh, Shameless plug here for Zach. Zach owns the business. I'm just a shop monkey who grinds stuff or whatever, but, uh, American West fabrication, like if you've heard Kurt Isaacson before say, you know, the best door he's ever forced is one of our doors. And it happens to also be one of the cheapest. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking for one, uh, hit Zach up and be like, you know, 4,500 bucks is like a basic door. You know, and most people who have bought one, it's probably easily twice that for most door props. So, oh, yeah. Anyway, but like it was, that was an awesome experience because not only was I able to learn more about forcible, forcible entry, but just going, diving into it and building a prop, the department is going to get better now too because the people who came on before me, they also, guess what, didn't get to force any door props either. It was all whatever happened on scene, which we know with no props whatsoever, probably wasn't great. And so just diving into that kind of launched me into this forcible entry thing. And it was like, there was not really anybody who around us who had door props. So we now we have three or four door props. And I was literally calling people being like, I see you're teaching or you're having a conference in nowhere, Idaho. I'm like, do you guys want a forcible entry class? (laughs) You know, being like, you don't have to pay us. We'll do it for hamburgers and beers, buy us a burger and a beer and we'll haul these door props over there and teach the class. And that's what we did for a few years is just, we had the props and nobody else did. And so, you know, that was about the same time I was like the second, last second, to last person in my department to get social media. I was very against it. Uh, I got on social media and I'm like, wow, look at all this stuff. Look at all this training and stuff. And then just eating it all up. What are Um, these girls doing? Yeah, right. No, this is a little different then. No, this is like 10 years ago. But uh, I was like, what are these guys doing? These door props and this like launched into this thing. And we just started traveling around and uh, teaching forcible entry for free, basically. And then right about the time it was getting serious. And we were like, we should probably get insurance. We should probably like <laughs> charge people, uh, for classes, you know, like this is getting, we're getting, we're starting to teach a lot. Um, that's when, uh, I hit up Cody Trust and was like, Hey, uh, they had started brothers in battle at that point. And I was like, Hey man, like we're doing the same type of thing. You guys are, Have you guys ever thought of expanding, uh, brothers in battle, and yeah, Cody and Jesse came over and met with me and Ben and like the rest is history. We just merged with them. We're like, okay, refined by fire is gone. It's all brothers in battle now. Um, we don't have to do the insurance thing. We don't have to do any of that. They've already done all that. They're professionals, right? Lucky so, you. Cause yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how that happened. How I got, uh, I kind of got launched in the forcible entry thing and just, Yeah, it was just quite literally a matter of having the prop, you know, made the difference, and so, um, and then it's just a really easy thing to train on your by yourself, you know. If you're people all the time, is like, how do I get my crew to train and blah blah blah? It's like just fucking do it by yourself. Then, if the if you you know again my expansive leadership knowledge, lead by example. Maybe you're out there by yourself okay, well, suck it up. At least you're getting better, right? Like, Keep working. Forcible entry is easy because then you can add in all these little elements. You can be like, okay, I'm, I've been forcing the door a bunch. Well, now I'm going to mask up and force the door. Now I'm going to force the door and I'm going to grab a Vic 20 feet behind it. It's like, you can build off this one skill that you don't have to, hopefully no one has to ask permission to force the door at their station, but like, you know, <laughs> hopefully, but like you can go out there in the Bay and you can hammer on that thing for hours. If you want, buy the wood yourself at home Depot or whatever it takes to uh, practice that skill. So, um, that's kind of where my love of forcible entry came from. Is like building the props and going through that whole experience of building them and teaching with guys. And then just hours and hours and hours, um, spent. I'm still, I mean, I still do it all the time, right? You go out there and you mess with the door and you learn something new and you try something new and, you know, yeah, so that's where the force of Wintry Side came from.
1: I was I was laughing because we have a great friend Battalion Chief uh, Riser out in Story County. He just bought two doors for his guys, and he told them, you know, you don't ever have to ask permission to use these doors. I, I need to come to you guys and say, hey, dude, we're spending too much money on wood. Yeah, like that's that's, awesome. that's his goal, you know. And it was really mm-hmm. cool to hear that from him. But going back to prop doors. A lot of the times with guys on prop, they're like, it's prop doors. These don't function like real doors, and it doesn't feel like a real door. And we've all forced real doors, and we've all forced a ton of different types of prop doors. And there are some that feel a little better than others as far as like reality-based stuff. But reps are reps are reps, right? And if we go through the same process on a prop door that we're going to go through on a real door, we might beat the real door in less steps because we can make these props pretty bomber. But the steps are still there, and we build that muscle memory. We build those good training scars, right? So when we get into that stress situation on a different style door or a real door, it's still going to force. Yeah, you know and we mean? don't.
0: You don't just donkey kick it, you know, or start bashing it with the like a, a battering ram with the halogen bar. And yeah, and part of that too is just, is just we know the the props even really good door props are not exactly the same as doors. Usually they're harder, but like, you just have to pay attention to like, um, I tell, um, like our new recruits all the time. I'm like, you're going to gap a lot on this door prop. Um, just know that like real doors, you're probably not going to gap as much as you do on a prop because it's not a half inch thick piece of steel on the stop on a regular residential door. It's a, you know, flimsy piece of wood or whatever. So you might get one gap or two gaps, but then you, you might just tear it off or the ads is going to be chewing into it. So don't get in this habit of like, it's the door prop and you, you don't want to progress in your force because you didn't hear the wood crack. And so they'll gap the door 18 times, you know? And it's like, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. So like, give it a gap if some wood breaks, cool. If it doesn't, cool. And then drive those forks in, right? Because before GAP set force, and I feel like, uh, you know, um, Captain Morris from the FDNY really kind of brought that to light for most people is, you know, you just put the forks against the door and you drive them in and you force it. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of, Gapping with the ads going on, I don't think in the early days of forcible entry, I could be wrong on that, but no, I can assure you there was not. Yeah, it's <laughs> and so it's like, don't forget, like, don't get in love with this one process on the door prop because if if we know that it's different, well, let's talk about that and then let's try to replicate that on the door prop. Be like, don't gap it six times and like all oh, your full force into it, and because the wood isn't breaking, you're unwilling to change the technique you're using, like. Just know that, hey, give it one shot, maybe two, and then get to work. So yeah, we got a two strikes and you're out rule. Nice. Yeah, whatever.
2: Whenever we teach uh, forcible entry, it's a you start with a one on one count. <laughs> so you, get, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you get two strikes and you're out. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. No plan that. A harder. I'm going to steal
0: that from you guys. Yeah, so absolutely. We, all,
1: we always talk about. Everybody wants that three to six gap. Right? They want to go mm-hmm. three o'clock to six o'clock, baby, or whatever. You know, they want to go nine to midnight, depending on where they're going with that tool. That's not reality, right? Yeah. And with another thing, we try and think of like catchy phrases that people can remember or mm-hmm. they're training to help them out. But I say, and that makes it sound super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Super <laughs> smart. yeah. I'm like, all of it's great. Some of it's going to work. Yeah. When you gap, if you get it all, baby, you get three o'clock to six o'clock. Yeah, baby, we're going to get that. Mm-hmm. But if you get a little one, That's all you need because all we need to do is get those forks to start working around that door or around that jam, depending on where our bevel's at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, the other thing that happens a lot on door props is, is that, um, Oh, I know where I was going with that, but I did it again, folks. (laughs) I interrupted the guest. That's all right. No, (laughs) you derailed him. No, uh, The other thing that I try to, I'm back on track here. The other thing that I try to uh, tell new people, especially too, is like, don't get surprised by the door opening.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Be (laughs) be prepared to win. That's what we tell all the time. uh,
0: Yeah. you guys are, you guys need a lot more t-shirts than you got. (laughs) Catchphrase stickers. Yeah. Be prepared to win is what we always say. Incoming slaps here. You know, everyone loves sticker, right? So yeah, yeah, it's like, um, Yeah. Don't be surprised by the door opening because, again, on the prop, a lot of times it's like, okay, we we gap with the ads a couple times, we drive the forks in. If it's a tight door prop, you drive the forks in, beveled to the jam, you push it to the door, you wedge, you you know, you go through this whole process. Well, real door, you could you could try to drive the forks in once, and the thing just pops open, and then you're left standing there, you know. So you have to know that basically every single move you could do on the door. Might open it up so don't get caught off guard because it's like you have this process that you practice all the time. Again, training scars, like just know, like that's not always how it goes. So be ready for that. And you have, there are ways to set up the door to make those things happen. Like one time you lock it harder and you got to go through like your whole gamut of two firefighter forcible entry. The next time you lock it really light and it opens on the gap and you try to build in these things to make sure that you don't get stuck in this one thing of like, hey, let's put as much wood in this thing as we can every single time and make it hard as we can. Well, you're going to build bad habits. No, they're not necessarily bad habits, but you're going to build this training scar that when you go to the real door in the fireground and it opens with the ads and the gap, and then you're going to be standing there in the doorway and a nozzleman's going to run you over, you know, <laughs> when, you, when you should be in there like doing your live fire layout, right? So- I
1: had a great one. Well, it's not great, but it's a great example. It, at the time, it made me realize we had some some training issues we needed to take care of. But I had uh, bumped up the captain a few months back, and we had a—it was an EMS call, right? Shock, everybody's blown away. Uh, we had a EMS call for somebody down in the house that couldn't get up, couldn't get to the door. We get to the house, and they got it locked up like Fort Knox, right? Finally, all right, we could do some fire stuff on an EMS call. Told the fireman, go get the irons okay they run over get the irons sure enough, you know they go through their progression boom they get the fork they get the forks And it was a tight door we had to use forks get the forks and he barely pushes it door flies open because they fly open a lot farther on real doors than they do on prop doors and he lets the bar go and the halligan goes sailing into the house about 10 feet ping bing bing and this is for a down person. Yeah, I was like thank you, Lord they weren't laying right there. But right. I mean, it shocked him so much. He dr- he let go of the bar and threw it into the house. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, we went through all this <laughs> training, right? And we go through all this stuff on forcible entry. For, what's the goal? Like the the base, most basic goal of forcible entry: open the door. Yeah. And then when it opens, guys are mind blown. Yeah. Like, Holy shit! Yeah, all that worked. I, that worked. Yeah. <laughs>
2: this that's, is black magic.
0: Yeah, that's those sneaky training scars, right? Because that obviously never happened to him. On the door prop, right? Because he'd never experienced it before. That, but, that right. forcible
1: entry mm-hmm. because it catches that wood or it slowly yeah. opens or it's a metal door that weighs a thousand pounds and barely yep. swings. You know, and we just, that's when, you know, we say the same thing yeah. you do, be
0: prepared to win. Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta, it's just so funny because you gotta be so intentional with those little things. It's like, you know, one time don't even put wood in the door. Like you're, you're like, okay, I'll set it up for you, you know, and then they go to force it and I almost guarantee if you've been hitting some reps, good, they're gonna gap that thing, and the thing's gonna fly over, open, and they're just gonna stand there. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna be like, "You didn't even lock it." Well, some, you know, <laughs> some doors are open. Some, yeah, it's the same thing. Like the whole try before you pry. You know, uh, we call it brothers in battle. We do the toe and shoulder, right? So you try the doorknob, toe into the door, shoulder into it. Like every once in a while, don't lock it, so it actually opens when they do that you know, again, so you don't get, get caught off guard with that little training scar there.
2: Yeah. One of the things we teach in class too, for folks out there listening, if you're a fireman and you walk up and you try that door and it opens, just reach in and lock it and then close it again. That, you know, tell your captain. Yeah, hey, it's right. locked uh, I, uh, Yeah. No, I say that all the time <laughs> yeah, too. Like look around up. and be
0: like, All right, I'm a baseball bat (laughs) swing. You know, I don't get to do it enough not to do that. Yeah, right. So
1: never waste it, right?
0: Um so yeah, that's the that's the forcible injury side is started building the props and the training, you know, kind of naturally, organically happened and then became a part of Brothers in Battle and that changed the trajectory of my fire service career, undoubtedly, because there's so many um, you know, outstanding people and outstanding firemen in that group. Uh, yeah, it made a big difference on the search side. That was, I wouldn't say it was forced, but, uh, we used to do a thing in my department called the quad County truck Academy. And, uh, at the time, you know, we were, we had some instructors, uh, great firemen from, um, Southern California from, uh, San Bernardino County, which I don't know if that's actually Southern, but, uh, and then Riverside city um, helping us. So we had these like five guys that we had kind of handpicked to come up and help us with this class. And, uh, and then we wanted to get mentored by them. So then we could kind of take over or co-instruct with them. And so when they were, uh, my now battalion chief, uh, <laughs> Ben Rosenbaum, uh, is, uh, obviously a big mentor of mine and a fellow brothers in battle guy. They're divvying out these things of like, okay, this, you're going to do vertical vent, you're going to do force of entry. And he told me, he's like, and you're going to do search. And I was like, what? I don't want to do search. I want to do force of, like, I'm the door prop guy. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to do that. I want to do force of entry. He's like, you're going to do search. So, I, I honestly don't know if it was something he saw or it was just like he wanted to do forcible entry and he wanted to give vent to the, the other truck captain or at the time or, or what, but he's like, you're going to do search. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do search. And uh, that kind of started that journey down. Okay, I guess I got to learn everything I can do about search. And I'm like most people, my, and this is not to talk bad about, Um, the people in my department, I think, uh, you know, we're a product of the training environment we grow up in and my, you know, probably first year or so, at least of search drills was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do a search drill and go, okay, we're going to put the, your hood over your face mask. That's a requirement, right? Got to put the hood over your face mask. You're, uh, (laughs) You're going to be uh, up in the mezzanine and we're going to fill it full of crap and wires and all kinds of stuff. You're actually going to be searching for a downed firefighter, not an actual victim. And we're going to blare Metallica music. We might turn your bottle off while you're searching. And it's just like, okay, search means you're going to die. Basically, you're not going to save anyone. You can't even save yourself. You (laughs) know, It's like, that's (laughs) what uh, the beginning of my search journey felt like. And I mean, I'm still battling training scars from that because... Um, Like the, the, probably the worst training scar that I've had to overcome is uh, closing my eyes on real incidents. And the reason why I closed my eyes in real incidents, this kept happening to me. And I was like, why the fuck am I like searching in this house and there's smoke? And then it's like, I'm waking up from a dream and I'm like, oh, my eyes are open. I can actually kind of see. And it was because you put your hood over your face mask, you close your eyes like, unless you're completely insane, I guess you just stare at the clear plastic. Like everyone just closes their eyes and starts doing the, you know, feeling around thing. And so you do that. And this is what's funny about training scars. The more you train, the deeper those scars get is like, I'm doing stuff all the time with that hood over my mask. And I'm going to actual incidents and closing my eyes while doing searches, which is not great, you know. <laughs> no, I. I and think still, you should use your eyeballs yeah, if you can. I, yeah. I'm still. Uh, I'm still waiting for someone to tell me that there's a time when you should close your eyes. Uh, when you're super
2: scared.
0: Yeah, when you're about to die, I guess. You
2: know, on, but, on fire attack from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Close them up. You could listen. Yeah, but oh, you, your, you, you can enhance close your, your other senses. Yeah.
0: Close, close, your, yeah, close your eyes to listen. But it's Set. like when you're driving in the car and you're trying to really pay attention and look, you turn the radio, turn the radio down. down. yeah, Because <laughs> yeah. so you to can't do with it. see if you can hear. Yeah. 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 They're mutually exclusive <laughs> but, for sure. But hey, yeah, so that... If your brain's as small as mine. They are sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I kept I kept finding myself with my eyes closed. And so it was like, that was a, a search training scar that I've had to overcome. And the way that I've tried to do that is like, um, Life Fire Layout's a perfect example. I'm going to do this to somebody at the Tactics on Tap tonight just to see if they have this training scar. But like, what I'll do now is I go to do a Life Fire Layout and you're doing a bunch of reps. And then, you know, somebody gets done and I'll be like, Hey, what did you see? Like, what did I see? Like, you're just in the bay, right? And you're like, What did you see? And they'll be like, uh, you know, whatever. I, yeah, I saw smoke or I saw the ground. And it's like, what I want them to say is like, no, I saw a door. I saw a hose rack. I mean, I want them to say the actual things that they saw. And that's what I do for myself is like, I would force the door, do my life fire layout and then turn around and like with a piece of chalk, write down, what did I see? And then be like, is that what's actually there? You know? And then you can like move stuff around or whatever and play this little game because even if you're not closing your eyes a bunch, if you're just going through the motions, you're not really looking. You know, someone might be uh, sorry. Someone might be like moving their head down and and moving their head up and being like, "I'm doing all the parts of life fire layout," but they're not looking. They're just going through the motion because they've done it 15 times in the last half an hour. And so, for me, I had to like retrain myself to keep my eyes open. And so now I don't. I don't put a hood over my head when I'm training at all. And I don't do it to anyone else ever. If I want it to be bad visibility, I'll grab the smoke machine and use the smoke machine. I'm not going to, I don't want to give that scar to anybody else. And I know that it takes more work and, and maybe not everyone has that, but I feel like the ability to use your eyes is better than learning how to do whatever, uh, when you're blacked out, because it's like, the times in structure fires where it's truly zero, zero visibility, I feel like that percentage is pretty low, even though I'm, I'm not the most experienced guy, but I feel like that percentage is low. So even if you have that several inches of visibility down low, like I want to be able to maximize that, but I can't do that if my eyes are closed. So um, we are getting off track there with like, that's where my search training started is like, yeah, it's scary. You're going to die. I'm going to have my eyes closed. And then I had to try to progress out of that. And what's funny is you train like at the time in the volunteer academy, you know, we train like that for search. And then I went to my first structure fire and we got assigned to search. And the guy I was with just took off. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm just like following him around. Like, <laughs> uh, aren't we Aren't we supposed to be holding on to each other? You know, don't lose your buddy type of thing. And that's not what happened at all, but that's what we got trained to do. Like I can re- literally remember holding pant legs in my training for search. That's literally how I got taught 15 years ago. And that first structure fire, the dude was gone. And I was just like, well, that's the fucking difference. <laughs> like,
1: mayday, mayday, yeah, yeah. mayday. Yeah,
0: if I would have known how to call one. I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like, yeah, it was, uh, you know, and obviously it gets better when you learn like, oh, this is, that's what it's really like. Okay, well, then your first question is, well, why don't we train like that in the academy? If that's what we're really doing, why are we teaching this other way? And of course, that's tied up in all kinds of certs and, and yeah, things that I don't, want, I don't want to get mad about. Insta, yeah, Insta, Insta. There's a PowerPoint. Yeah. It shows oh, yeah. them going in and out of the room. Yeah, I mean, luckily we don't do that anymore. We have our own standards and stuff, so we don't have to deal with that at all. And I encourage other people to do the same, but... Um, yeah. It's like overcoming all these little things to figure out, okay, what does a real search actually look like? And then, yeah, this diving headlong into that and Brothers in Battle had a huge influence on that with me. Uh, Cody's got a ton of experience in those searches, working the places he has. And and yeah, just uh, leaps and bounds after that of you know, slowly gaining experience and spending, you know, 15 years isn't the most time ever in the backseat, but it's a good chunk of time, uh, and slowly gaining that experience over time. And then just trying to match the training, uh, to what actually happens as much as possible. So, yeah.
2: That, that's always been one of my big gripes about training academies and just training in general is like, we teach guys to say all these words flashlight radio tool when they're done putting on their turnouts when they don't have a flashlight they don't have a radio and they're not holding a tool Uh, life fire layouts another one it's like these are actions that we're taking not words we're saying so i tell guys all the times words have meaning words have if you're checking for overhead obstructions when you throw a ladder don't be looking at your boots when you're doing it actually look up if you're doing a life fire layout call out actually do that then turn around and tell the person behind you what you saw and it just We harp on that all the time. Like, if you have tools, use them. If you're wearing a flashlight and you're coming to one of our trainings, if you're, if you got a flashlight, use it. If you bring a tick with you, guess what? You get to use it because we want you using those things that you're going to use in real life. Don't put my fire out. Right. Oh, oh
0: yeah. That's that my, fire. yeah, that's that's a horrible Every, one. Every
1: the way we train is crazy, and the the smoke machine is like I think it's a game changer. I really do, and I think if your department's not using theatrical smoke, you need to really change that. You need to go to the training di- division and get one because it's the quickest way to add a semi. We all know that it acts different, right? But it's going to add a obscured visual aspect to your training, especially with search, where it's not like blacking out. Right. Your next best option, if you don't have it, get a hold of BA shields and get one of their smoked out shields that you can put on. So you can still see a little bit like you would in a fire, but it's going to obscure it a, a somewhat. But putting your hood over and all this kind of stuff, it's just not going to do what we want it to do. And again, the call out, you know, the life fire layout, this is not, I always say, your mindless mantra for a successful force. <laughs> you force the door, you scream life, fire, layout, you go and chug a beer. Like that's how you do it, man.
0: Yeah. But, <laughs> high five in the front yard. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I think the the land of make believe like that kills us sometimes. I think like what you're saying with the, the flashlight and stuff is, because like if you, uh you know, if you don't turn your flashlight on when you're training all the time, guess what you're not going to do when you go to the call? You're not going to turn it on. You know, it's just another, it's we just another it, example. I've, I've done it myself. Like you sure. get off the rig and I get in the house and I'm like, my freaking flashlight isn't on. And <laughs> You reach down, you just fucking dark turn, in here. <laughs> you know? <It's>, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hell. We you know, watch it at our uh, search
1: training. They come in, you know, in, in groups in their search group. And if they don't have flashlights on we can see them that they clearly have flashlights attached to them. We'll say it, you know, out loud. And there's instructors, turn your flashlights on. Yeah, and all of a sudden it's all this beacon of light comes on and we all know, yeah, sometimes your light gets obscured but if we're not turning it on on the the exterior as part of our process once we go in, we don't know if we're obscured by the smoke, we don't know if that's refracting off poorly or positively until we get in there, then turn it off don't do the opposite, because you'll, exactly you'll get into your training groove and I'm not turning my damn light on
0: yeah, yeah, that's exactly what will happen Yeah.
1: so, uh we got into search pretty good. We got into forcible entry pretty good. Uh, I'm looking down uh, the list here and I kind of, am going to skip around because I want to tie into that. I want to talk about firefighter rescue survey with you. Okay. So how, how did that come about? Where was that from? Obviously this ties directly into search and, and we use the numbers from firefighter rescue survey at at nauseum in our search, um, class that we give because what we do and we tell people in the beginning of our search class, we're up here and we're going to give you facts, not opinions. We're not going to come up here and tell you how we think you should, search or how we think you should write SOPs or what we think you should do on anything. We're going to come up here and tell you what the numbers say you should do, what you choose to do with factual numbers and infallible sciences like math is up to you.
0: Yeah. yeah um, so, I'm, I'm probably going to get the years wrong, maybe, but somewhere around Okay, the internet will fix it for you. Yeah, right 2014 fifteen i I started kind of wondering like how many people do we rescue every year and so I started looking for that information, and I think this was in I think this was in preparation of doing the FireX talk. you know there's like a YouTube video you can watch um that I did this FireX talk thing. Uh, I think it was in preparation for that. I started trying to get into these numbers and found, you know, the U S fire administration and these other, um, places where some numbers were, and I could, you know, I could find how many people died in toaster fires every year, but I couldn't find how many people got rescued. I was like, surely somebody's got to have this information. And at that time, uh, firefighter com, which was Kurt Isaacson's site that, um, you know, he posted rescues too. Uh, Andrew Bassard posted rescues too. And that was just uh, news clippings, right? Or stuff you Google search. And and at least we were knowing. And I ended up posting some to that. And I think there was a couple other guys involved with that too. But I don't exactly remember who that, who everyone was. But it was basically like, do a Google search and say, oh yeah, somebody's getting rescued. Somebody got rescued here. And it was like, okay, well, we're saving somebody. You know, but it was just like, how do we not, know as an American fire service, how many people we were rescuing. And it just, I couldn't wrap my head around why we would not know that number or have any idea. Really. We had no idea. And I don't know, maybe, uh, I wouldn't think I would get in trouble for this, but like, I kind of landed on the idea that like, well, there's not a ton of money in like saving people all the time, but there's a lot more money and selling safety and death and things like that. So like maybe that's it. Like maybe, you know, it's like if we can make the job seem more dangerous than maybe the facts tell us or we can or we can say like, hey, you need this kind of, uh, you know, appliance in your house because if you don't, you're going to die from a fire because this meant how many people die from fires. Like I feel like there's probably a lot of money wrapped up in that. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but I was just like, I don't understand why we would not track how many people we rescued like that's why the fire department exists is to save people from smoke and fire and we have no idea how many people we rescue so i started diving into those numbers and i was getting some information that i felt like was good Where like hey this percentage of people is are exiting the building when they get injured by a fire it's like okay so like quite a few people are trying to escape the fire well when they try to escape the fire where are they going to go? They're going to go to probably whatever entrance they use most often in their house because they have the same scars that we've been talking about, right, with training. And I was like, okay, so there's like some good information here. Hey, half the people who die in structure fires every year die in a bedroom. Okay, so that means there's a lot of fires where people are in the bedroom. So I'm like, okay, this is pretty good information. And then... Uh, that's right around the same time as I think the very first firemanship conference in Portland is when I met Justin McWilliams for the first time. And we started chatting about search and yeah, he's Justin is so awesome with all that. And it's always motivated and, uh, We started talking about search stuff and and everything. And then it was kind of, we were batting around this idea. And then Nick LaDine called me uh, and was like, hey, I'm doing this thing with the NFPA, talking about search. You seem to be the person that's been looking at these numbers. And then it was just kind of this organic thing of like, why don't we just start a rescue survey, you know? And it doesn't matter whose idea it was, but it's just like, why don't we just start the survey? And I think at the time, Dennis Laguerre was doing a, um, hose burn through like, um, voluntary survey. Like, Hey, if your hose gets burnt through, fill out this thing. And it was like, well, why can't we do that with rescues? And so that's basically where it came from. Is like, nobody knew what, how, to, how to do any of that. Right. Like, and so we got these other people like Trent Morrison and, uh, and Shane Thomas and these guys involved. um, Hopefully, I'm not leaving anybody out of that original uh, group. But it's like uh, Trent was able to build the website. And like, we're like, okay, our original idea is we wanted it to be a part of um, firefighterrescues.com, which Kurt had already been doing um, because like he had that. And we kind of wanted to attach the survey to that website, but it just wasn't going to work. So, um, with Kurt's permission, and Kurt just wants to make the fire service better, obviously, we we all know Kurt is awesome awesome fire service leader and he we're like hey can we make this our own website and he's like absolutely you know he's in full support of that so that's what we did we made this survey into this website and uh you know it started getting some traction a little bit and uh at the time i was posting a lot uh, helping cody with the brothers in battle facebook page and just you know putting a lot of stuff out there and be like, Hey, we're doing this thing. If you got a rescue, even if it's an older one, like fill it out. And, you know, it was kind of the first, uh, first head through the brick wall. And so it wasn't always an easy process. Uh, we did get some backlash for sure. Um, you know, and even from some people that I kind of looked up to as fire service mentors that just thought the numbers were dumb. Like we don't need this. There's, it's not telling us anything. And even, yeah. I, well, I'm not going to tell that story, but um yeah, we just had some we had some some backlash for sure for a while, but we just kind of kept pushing in the fire it. Fire service? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh but yeah, so we just kind of kept pushing it and it started gaining some steam and then the first class just Justin and I taught a search class, the first class we ever taught together in uh St. Paul, Minnesota. Which is over in Nick's Nick Ladine's area of the world. And uh Jeff Rothmeyer was in that class. I remember he was still working for Saint Paul. I'm just uh finishing up reading his book, um, Mastering the Craft Right Now, which is awesome. But um yeah, we taught that class and I'm I'm pretty sure that is the first time we used the numbers from the firefighter rescue survey in a class was that fool's class in Saint Paul. And and even from that class we had some people that jumped on board later on and and been a part of the survey. So Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it it started very organically. I feel like I haven't been as involved in it the last few years, uh, because, you know, for me, I always felt like, you know, me crunching numbers is just, you already heard the math that was going on earlier in this (laughs) podcast, right? Like, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so I think most of those numbers were right. That I used to post, they seem to be, have held consistent, but like me trying to figure out percentages and stuff is just, I knew at some point it's going to have to be people that are better at this. And I, I always knew that it was going to be a, a bigger name in the fire service that was going to like push this thing to the level where it needed to be. And that was, that person was definitely not me. Um, and so yeah, it's just been awesome to see kind of where it's gone. And yeah, it's it's just one of those things that was super organic and obviously a lot of people get benefit from it. I think some people still don't necessarily think it's that valuable, but it's it when you look around, it's like it's pretty hard to deny. I think that, you know, knowing how many people we at least an idea, right? We still have no idea how many actual people get rescued, but like Having at least an idea of this stuff, I think, is beneficial to the fire service. And it's certainly beneficial to people that are trying to change the search culture in their department. And their admin only speaks in data. And if they only speak data, it's like, well, this is the only data that exists. And, you know, luckily, I think this is one of the miracles, maybe, or, or just one of the awesome proving points of the rescue survey is that, you know, the numbers really line up with uh like legacy experience so like the you know the people that have been doing the job for 30 or 40 years and been working in busy places where they're making grabs like the survey it does not go against those guys ex- guys and girls experience um it really i think if anything just uh you know validates it with some data you know and so we weren't sure that was going to happen when we started the survey. It was just like, okay, here we go. Like this might tell us that we should only apply water from the exterior, you know? And that's just <laughs> like, at the time that was a big topic, right? You know, that was a uh, stuff that was going on with UL and that, like, that was and it and it was like, so this might tell us that, you know, we really don't rescue very many people, you know? And, and so it was like, there were a lot of unknowns and thankfully, you know, um, the fire service was pretty, you know, on the right track already with looking at people's experience and and the survey. Just, I feel like, just kind of validates that. In many, in many cases, I don't know it, you know, how much it changes um, a lot of pa- past practices. But if like if you're a department that um, would assign writ before search, boy, you're going to have a tough argument if you look at the numbers of that survey. You're going to go well. You can do that, but you're really, if there is a victim in that building, you're playing with their survivability by doing that. Or if you sign water supply before, I mean, there's, there's all these things that just say like, look, you know, to me, and the one of the first two arriving units on scene should probably be searching on a regular residential structure fire. and Whether, regardless of whether that's truck or engine, all that depends, you know, firefighting is local. Right. But like, for a lot of places, if your truck is going to be delayed and be fourth due and be four minutes behind that second due engine, man, I really feel like those guys on the and girls on the second due engine should be able to get in there and get a search done. Because if we do what we say we're going to do, and and the most important thing in the fire department is first life safety of both the civilian and us. Well, you know, try to argue that you know we need a, a water supply before that when you look at the UL and this stuff and just how much water it takes to put out most of the fires we go to. It's like, I don't know if I need a unending water supply for this two bedroom house fire before we need somebody in there looking for someone laying on the carpet. Um, so yeah, I think the survey is very valuable in that regard of just bolstering search culture and then challenging previous views departments had and whatever, for whatever reason they had those, um, you know, it's a lot of times it's pretty tough to argue against some hard data that's out there. So,
2: Well, I can say for sure, I've talked about it on here before, but it changed the trajectory of my career, um, having access to those numbers. So first and foremost, thank all you guys. I want to thank all you guys for being part of that and starting that because I spent a big chunk of my career, about five years of my career, uh, late as my firefighter, Period ended and then into my um, time as a company officer on RIT because that was the f- that was the flavor at the time. And I spent a long, long time trying to perfect our RIT program at our department, teaching and, and learning, going to conferences all over the United States, trying to learn better RIT tactics and this and that. And then the numbers came out and it was like, oh, I've been doing the wrong thing <laughs> for the last five years, which is a super hard thing to do, to go, hey, I was wrong. And, and do a 180 and go, I'm going to go this way now. Uh, you guys all still want to follow me over here? I know we just walked down this road for this long, but um, it it completely changed the way that the way that I approached the fire ground, um, the way that I thought about firefighter safety, victim survivability, all that. So it, it just completely 180 in my head. And uh, luckily, through the numbers, through the data, we were able to change the culture of our department that we work at. Uh, and
1: fix that problem. So again, thank you guys. It, it really has changed the fire service for me. It's really interesting that you say when you guys started that venture because I'd never thought about... I mean, we teach a class, our search class is based off of the numbers from the firefighter rescue survey. Because, H&H finest hour search, not church of search. Not church of search. Sorry, Nick. I apologize again. <laughs> Long story. Yeah, Nick Ladine's called me as well before. <laughs> Different subject. Um <laughs> So one of the interesting things about, cause we teach that based on the numbers, right? And to me, it's, it's a no brainer. Why would you not want to know these numbers? But when you initiated, you said, when you started this, it was a scary road to hoe because what was it going to say? And then once the data's there, it's real. Right. You can't just get what you get it back and go, mm, this didn't do what I wanted it to do and sweep it under the rug. Yeah, if it said you don't go on
2: fires anymore, you just yeah. throw it away and yeah, just, right. we didn't yeah. do that. This yeah. is stupid. Don't mean, we're not
0: reading this. It, I mean, we obviously we had we had our previous biases of the people who had the most experience, you know, my mentors that had the most experience searching and we're like, Well, this is what they say happens on fires. But yeah, it was still an unknown, you know, because it's a voluntary survey, so it's like there was still that thing of like, I don't know how this is going to shake out, you know? And I feel the same way about uh, that Fire X talk. Um, I, I think I've watched it for like the first time this last a couple years ago. Um, I was teaching search for uh, our new hire academy and uh, I get messages from people saying, hey, we play that video for our new hires or whatever in the academy. And I was like, well, I should probably do that too. And I sat in the back of the classroom and watched it. And the first thing I said was, uh, man, I'm glad all that stuff turned out to be true. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Because it was like, there was a lot of like numbers and a lot of talking about water and where water should be applied and all this stuff. And I was just like, man, that could have gone really bad. (laughs) It's aged well, luckily for me. Um, But yeah, it could have, it could have not. And the rescue survey is the, the same way. It was like, you just took a chance. You're just like, why why are we not doing this and then just fucking go for it and you know i feel the same way now about this uh stress inoculation stuff of like the highest performing teams in the world are doing this why are we as the fire service not doing this and then it just starts from there and you kind of dive in and so you know that's how the rescue survey was and and luckily now that there's so many amazing people involved in it that it just I think it's going to keep going. And I mean, who knows what it looks like five years from now or 10 years from now. Or, and, and yeah, what kind of change it has lasting on the fire service would be cool to see.
1: You made some great points when you talked about you. if you want to change culture, right? It, it's, it really has to come from the top because it's got to get greenlit. You know, and 10, 20 years ago, if you wanted to change culture, it was who could talk the loudest and beat their chest the hardest right? Which there's some validity to do that too. We'll get into that in another podcast. <laughs> um, But if you can bring the numbers forward, right? If you can combine these UL studies, right? Because I took Kurt and I'm sure you've taken the People Before Water, his new class that he's doing. And he talks about that UL numbers, 200 gallons is the average amount of water that we're using for the majority of structure fires that we're going to, to get full extinguishment. 200 gallons, take the class, look it up, read the paperwork. It's there. The numbers are there. Not according to every operator I've ever met. Oh, yeah. Water supply, water supply. (laughs) Not according to these training scars we built into the fire service along the way. And we get into this where now we've got this number where the average fire is getting put out with 200 complete extinguishment, 200 gallons of water. We've got the numbers from the firefighter rescue survey. We can start to dictate and build tactics from training day number one in probie school all the way through the rest of people's careers based on infallible science of math, right? Where we can tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. And if we get ourselves, and we talk about this in our class, if you do all the things right based on the numbers, train yourself, get your, be proficient at your skills. If you do all the things right and we still find some dead people in there, bring them out or they don't make it because that's a reality that I think a lot of us have lived through, um, you can go to bed at night, right? And if we keep telling ourselves that we need to set up writ first and we need to get a water supply first and we don't really need to train on forcible entry all the time because you just kick doors in and our mask up time sucks and yada, 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 yada. We can go lie on the tailboard, talk about how crazy that fire was and, oh, bros, <laughs> I mean, you never know what's going to happen on the fire ground, right? It's wild in there. And we can say whatever the fuck we want, but go to bed with yourself at the end. And that's a different story. And I think if we start focusing on numbers and understanding using the error of information to better ourselves and better the fire service we're all going to be better off for it
0: yeah if you if you uh if you're going to have uh, an argument against those things like you know fast water people over water right like you're going to have to pull some numbers from somewhere else to combat the numbers that are out there right now otherwise you just look like you don't like it so you don't want to do it that way and that's you know, surefire way to not be a good leader. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it can be pretty powerful stuff when you're trying to uh, change your culture for the better, for sure.
1: Yeah. I think, I think we've definitely seen that firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we want to talk about another subject you had on here that I think is, uh, something I kind of avoid talking about. So when you brought it up, I'm glad you kind of (laughs) tossed it in there in the end but I kind of avoid talking about work life balance. You put that in there and we sort of talked about it in the beginning and I said, "We'll get there, we'll get there. We'll let's talk about that in a minute." But that work life balance thing, when I started in the fire service and I'm going to try not to fanboy super hard on you right now. But when I started, you were hot and heavy in the fire service during that 2000 like 16, 17, 18 gap right there. I mean, it was a lot of Brian Olsen. You if you were engaged and you were Podcasting, and you were doing the things right. Then, if you were doing all the things, then you saw Brian Olson, right? You you were you were seeing you around, and then all of a sudden there's a gap, right? You said you you took time off your social media, you like stopped doing that kind of stuff. Where'd you go? Did you refocus? Did you start to bring some more home and kind of try and balance work life at that point?
0: Yeah, I mean, so. The Boyer man's here. Perfect timing, actually. Uh, We're talking about work-life balance, Chris. So, hey, says (laughs) up for him.
1: Are we taking a break for a second? Well, I mean, we'll fix this gap, but okay. There you go. There you go. One twenty-seven. We'll have
3: Matt fix this. Okay. Sorry
0: to interrupt. Are you good? It's good to see you, dude.
3: Yeah, good to see you too, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, All right. is perfect time in work life balance. I was yeah. actually gonna ask you about that.
1: <laughs> All right, okay, Boyer man in the house. Uh, Chris Boyer just joined us. Uh, so you might hear him chiming in here. He's probably gonna chew that gum in the mic, he's got a thing about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, we were talking about work life balance.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, work life balance is an interesting one because, uh, you know, we we like to say in the fire service, like, yeah, I I do a pretty good job of doing the work-life balancing. And I call bullshit on that because we're all pretty similar. Like when we're into something, we're all in, you know? And so for a lot of us, myself included, and this is kind of where I've been, is that same thing. I was... In that time frame, 2015, 16, 17, 18, you know, I was going full bore with brothers in battle, and like, I mean, we're we're teaching as many classes as you want to teach, you know. Sometimes traveling once, twice a month to go teach, and you know, taking maybe one or two months off a year in the summertime. But like, I was full in on that, you know, flying out of state, uh, helping teach classes, and going to conferences and doing all that and all of that is incredibly positive stuff you're you're networking with people you're training you're you're you know you're doing the thing you're you're living that firefighter life like you want to but the thing to remember is there you know if you have a spouse or kids or whatever at home like you're not there you know and as much as as much as that traveling and teaching everything is a positive like you are sacrificing that time and there as much as we want to say you can make up for lost time you can't it's not a thing you can change the future but you cannot make up for lost time you can't we don't have a time machine unfortunately so for me it got to the point and i was you know struggling uh at home because it's like well this is what i challenge people on if they're doing a lot of this training stuff is like what is the atmosphere like when you leave to go do a class at home? If there is friction there, guess what? You're already in it. You know what I mean? You're already in that space where it's becoming a sacrifice, right, for your family that maybe they didn't sign up for. You know, because when my wife and I met, I was 19, she was 18. I was not a fireman. You know, uh, I did not become a volunteer fireman until my my literally the the first week my son was alive is the first week i started in the fire service so my kids have only known that but my wife that's she hasn't you know i wasn't a fireman i was a baseball player and then i was a dirt digger and that was it so man um, it went
1: it went like this up down yeah, up. For yeah, her. yeah for sure You're lucky you pulled <laughs> yeah, it out I'm yeah she well, thought didn't, she was going to the big no so. <laughs> no yeah, yeah
0: i don't think she did <laughs> i don't think she did but uh she was there um she was supportive but uh, yeah. It, and for me personally, I was, you know, that friction at home was really difficult because again, like they'd say, so my son Easton, he's 15. So by the time he's 18, just working a firefighter schedule alone, I will have been gone for like seven years, seven years of those 18 years. And that's a long ass time. If you think, if you put it in one, per, in one chunk like that, 6 to 7 years you're gone just because you're at work. And a lot of jobs that, you know, are like that, but like when you do that and then you go okay, now I'm I'm also leaving once a month for 3 or 4 days or twice a month for 3 or 4 days and you're like, holy shit, that's a lot of time. And that was time that, you know, and that caused friction at home because it's like you're gone all the time. Well, and then other than that, When you are home, we, you know, we got the, the fucking parasite, the computer in our pocket and with social media, you can, you can consume as much fire stuff as you want, even when you're at home. So it's like, yeah, you're, you're, my wife would tell me this all the time. She's like, you're physically in the house, but you're not here. You're thinking about fire stuff or you're doing, you're doing whatever. And so, um, that came to a head and I had like, I talked about this very publicly, um, you know, 2020 at the firemanship conference, like I had a, a near miss with like a suicide thing. And like, that was the moment that all of that changed because it was like this, I have, I have to change this one. I have to stop drinking so much. You know, at one point I was, I think I was, you know, it's just like, you want to escape no matter what it is, whether it's into your phone, into training, into alcohol is like, one or two bottles of whiskey a four day is what I was doing. And it's like, okay, well, that, that obviously had to change because that was not leading to a good place. And then, you know, everything is a sacrifice. So if you want to be home more, well, I, you know, I, luckily I had a friend and mentor, Stephen Tyler is like, you know, we would talk about this and I think this helped lead me, uh, down the path, um, that I'm on now. It's like, uh, You know, what good is it if you change the entire fire service, if you lose your family in the process? Right. Because like what we talked about earlier, you're the most badass firefighter that ever lived. The day you leave, someone else is going to be sitting in your seat. They're not going to enshrine that seat and no one else is going to be riding there. You will get replaced. Uh, Or if it's a desk, if you're you're at that level, right? Easy. easy. (laughs) I think think
1: you, uh, the family thing, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking away from the family thing at all. I think we try and, or we risk sometimes losing some of ourself as well. I find that when I'm hyper-engaged, if anybody who knows me personally knows that I'm an insane person, when I'm hyper-engaged, right, and, and I justify it by we're doing good for the fire service, which in turn is doing good for the community, which in turn is doing good for the world, you know, like I'm out here saving the world, but in that process, right, I'm not going to jujitsu as much, and I'm not taking time for respite from my mind. And I'm not reading the books that I enjoy reading that are not fire service based. I like spy novels, you know, and I'm not catching up on my novels. And I'm not going to the gym as much because I got to get this stuff done for this upcoming training. And, and you start to lose, aside from family stuff, you start to lose pieces of yourself that are mm-hmm. important for the full package as well. And that's something that currently, right now, I'm in this internal struggle trying to master myself and trying to figure out myself because I justify it with we're out here saving the world. Yeah. You know, how, how would I not take time away? How can I be so selfish as to want to go to jujitsu when I could be planning this training for these firefighters that need this stuff? Yeah. You know, it's, it's an, it's a weird dichotomy. It's not like I'm, you know, doing something negative, you know, I'm yeah, out there. Doing, that's
0: the hard part about it. That's yeah. why it's, like for me, I laugh at the balance thing because I'm not a balanced individual. <laughs> a lot of us aren't, right? Because if we're into that training thing, it's like we're fucking in. And if we're, if we're doing that, guess what? We're not doing other things. So the idea that I can balance the two, like some people are really good at that or, or maybe their spouse is very involved with the fire service. My wife does not want to go to a bunch of fire conferences and hang out with people like her husband. You know, she doesn't want to be surrounded by that all the time. Like that's not her idea. Do you of,
1: want me to call uh, her and tell her how cool you are? <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: we will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> She's known me for a long time. She knows that's not true. But it's like, uh Yeah, it that's not her idea of a vacation. You know, that's my you know, I like it. I think it's cool, but it's like that's not what she wants to do. So um yeah, you you know, it's just it's sad and Steven and I talked about this, right? It's sad when you see somebody who's like, um, uh, very well known in the fire service. And maybe, maybe because of that, it costs them something in their family, you know, and they don't have a good relationship with their kids or whatever. Like, I think, um, not to speak for Steven, but I, I, you know, people hound him about bringing the podcast back. He wants to be a good dad and a good husband, and you only have a small amount of time with your kids seems like a long time. Everyone talks about how fast their fire service career goes. Well, you know, almost cut that in half. And that's how much time you have with your kids before they're out of the house. So it's like, you have this finite amount of time, you know, it's, we're already gone a lot. So, uh, is it worth it? You know, and not everyone, it's not like I haven't been training obviously. And it's not like I haven't been teaching, but like not every single person who's really into training or maybe a good instructor or whatever has to change the entire fire service. If we all, you know, focused on, because it's not that big of an ask for me to go and teach one day on my four day in my area, you know, where I don't have a travel day on each side of it or whatever. I can do that and it doesn't disrupt the family as much as being gone for three or four days at a time all the time. And I can have an impact on the area that I work. Um, part of my thing, I hate it when we say things like, you know, all you need is a suitcase and 50 miles and you're an expert or you can't be a prophet in your own land. To me, I challenge that very much because it's like, okay, if you can't pass these things along to the people that are working with you, what is it about? Like, if I'm trying to do that and it's not working, what is it about me and my delivery and my approach that is not being effective with the people around me? Because if I'm being honest and they obviously know who I am and what I get to do and what I don't get to do and all of those things, like what is it about me and the way I'm delivering that they're not receptive to it versus just like, well, you know, uh, fuck these guys. I'm going to go change somebody in in the Midwest because they'll listen to me. (laughs) You know, it's just like, well, why don't we turn that internally and be like, well, what's what is it about me that is maybe falling short that I can't get buy-in from the people that are closest around me? So to me, that's a challenge of like, okay, how do I do that? Because probably at the end of that road is something that's much more beneficial to me and the people I work with than me going and teaching on the other side of the country. You know, because that doesn't really have an effect on my fire department, except for some re- You know, pe- way more people in the United States know about Eagle Fire in Idaho than they should, you know, because it's like, you know, you get a guy with a podcast and a guy who posts stuff on social media and it's like, Oh, you work for Eagle Fire. I'm like, how do you even know where Idaho is? You know? So it's like, but that's not really benefiting Eagle other than name recognition, which doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. So, um, taking all that stuff that you're going out there and then trying to do it internally is, uh, is more beneficial. I think, for a lot of us, and it's like that idea of like, you want to change the world, like change the change your household, right? You want to change the fire department? Imagine if everyone in the fire department, instead of crossing the country all the time, changed their own department, how much better off we would be. So that's a challenge to everyone out there that's doing that. And then, yeah, to me, uh, now looking back on it, like it costs you a lot. Uh, if you go, okay, I'm out here teaching a lot, doing all these things, you basically get to a point where you can teach as much as you want to. There's people asking for it all the time. There's conferences all over the place and like, come here, come here, come here. Well, I've gotten really good at saying no, um, to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it feels bad to do that. Um, you know, I'm here today because Boyer would not stop asking me about it basically, <laughs> you know. And I so like we owe your wife, yeah, and, he, oh, yeah. and he's Andy's he's a smoke diver and so then I, it's like uh it's awkward, you know, when I ghost him. Uh <laughs> but it's like um you know, I get really good at I've gotten really good at saying no and sometimes that hurts because it's like you you feel like you're disappointing that person, but in my head I just go, well, my kids are glad I'm here. I My wife is probably glad I'm here. Um, Probably. probably. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so to me now, like, yeah, maybe it's cost me, you know, some friendships, probably. Not in a bad way, but like if if what you do together with one of your firefighter buddies is teach all the time and then you stop teaching, well, that kind of, you know, things just change. Because it's like you don't live in the same state. And you're not seeing each other all the time at these classes. And so, yeah, getting, that's tough because it sense like, well, I had this friendship that was pretty close friendship and then now we haven't talked for a while, like that hurts. But at the same time, I look at the relationship I have with my kids and my wife now and it's, it's not perfect, but boy, is it a lot better than it was. And I was probably heading down a road where, you know people in the fire service would be like, oh man, you've done a lot of awesome things. But then again, when it's all said and done, I walk out of the station, I'm going to stand there and be like, now what, you know, because my wife is gone, you know, my kids don't want to have a relationship with me because I didn't spend time with them when they were younger. And yeah, you can change the future, like I said, but you can't make up for that lost time. It's just not, we say that to ourselves to be like, yeah, because, you know, in in a while I'll change it, I'll get better at it. And it's like, can't get it back. It just it doesn't work that way, at least in my mind. And so I'm very uh, cutthroat with those types of things where it's like if I've made this decision that I wanna be there more for them, it's like, okay, I'm gonna chop the head off this snake and even though it's a good snake and it's nice, you know, it's like it's gotta go. And like for me right now, the next level of that is is like the social media thing. I'm feeling this 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 build up to where like, I have these other goals in mind that I want things that I want to do that I've been talking about doing for a decade. And it's like, I don't think I'm ever going to do it if I don't get rid of the social media. And again, some people can balance that very well. I'm just not one of those people. So it's like, okay, like maybe it's got to go away, you know, maybe not permanently, but definitely for a long time. And I'm sure once I do it, um, yeah, I feel like I'm letting people down because you do get positive, positive affirmation of like, Hey, this video is great. You know, all that good training stuff. But like, again, for, for personal growth and for me just being a better fireman, again, I'm going to be a better fireman if I'm more present in my life all the time. What's the one thing, the biggest thing right now that keeps me from being present in my life all the time is the phone, right? That's the thing you guys know, everybody knows Like right now in most fire departments in the country, it would be a win for the crew if you could watch a movie in the recliners and no one got on their phone. (laughs) Is that not true? I mean, maybe my fire department is different. It's not. But it's like that we're at the point now with like the cell phones where like, if we could all sit in the recliners and watch one movie together and not just have look across there and see every single person on their phone while the movie is still playing... That would be a cultural win for us feeling together as a unit, which is kind of sad and hilarious at the same time, you know? So it's like, okay, well, here we go once again. Like, how do we, how do I get to that point of like being more present as a firefighter in my normal life, being more pre- present at home with my wife and kids? Again, trying to get better at that little steps at a time of just like, Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get on my phone, like after dinner. I mean, even if we're watching TV, like me and my wife are watching TV, at least we're watching TV together and we're not on our phones. So, you know, cause I'm sure again, the idea of like, Oh, one person's on this side of the couch, one person's on this side of the couch and we're both doing our thing on our phone. It's like, well, shit. You know, is that the most ideal thing for us? And then the kids are doing whatever they're, killing people online and Call of Duty or whatever they're whatever my teenage boys are doing, you know? It's like uh yeah, it's a it's a challenge and, you know, it sucks because it's like, yeah, you know, you you know the training is good. It's a good thing, but like, what is the best thing for you, for your family, for your fire department? And so those options are tough to weigh. And I've been I'm glad I made the decision I did to like step back from training because again Now the only regret I have is that I didn't do it sooner. Honestly, Um, because I am, I have like the relationship with uh, my two boys that I kind of you dream about when you're a dad. You know, we do work out together, we go on trips together, we do all the hunting and all that stuff. And I think if I would have continued down the path I was on, I don't think I would have that with them. And they don't want to be firemen, neither one of them, and that's okay. Like you know, I'm fine with that. So in their eyes, where would they have been if, you know, I basically traded time with them for the fire service? They would, they would hate the fire service, you know, and they don't hate it because they, I mean, they spend a lot of time around firemen because that's who, you know, we hang out with as other firemen, but it's like, yeah, I don't, I didn't want them to resent the fire service because it, it already takes time away. And then I chose to do more. And so, yeah, it's tough because you're, your influence is maybe not as great as it could be. And you feel like you're letting other firefighters down because, um, you know, people seem to like what you were doing and it seemed helpful to people. But uh, ultimately, it's like, yeah, it's good, but I'm not interested in good. Just like on the training ground, I'm not interested in good. And I got to be that way in my life too. I'm not interested in a good life. I want the best like life I can have. I want the best marriage I can have. I want the best relationship with my kids that I can have. I don't want a good one. Just like I don't want to force the door good. I want to be the fucking best at it. So for me, that's tough because it's like the the fire service part is easy. It's easy to be into the job and it's easy to put everything you got into being better. Uh, it's been a much more difficult challenge for me to do that in my personal life. So I'm still I'm still climbing that hill, but uh yeah, when you put when I put it in perspective like that to myself, I'm like, I don't I don't really want to settle for half ass on the fire ground. Why would I settle for it at home, you know? So
2: Well, I'll tell you what, all the stuff that you have done for the fire service is greatly appreciated. And if anybody deserves a little bit of a break at you, buddy. So <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just like some self-reflection on it. I do, I do, I am proud of some of the things that have come up uh, to me. The, uh, the, if I could choose what, you know, uh, people might remember about my career, it would be the invocations that I do, um, like for the firemanship conference and stuff like that. I mean, I wouldn't be a fireman without that part of my life, you know, without, uh, you know, so it's like those are the things that I think that's what I want to be the lasting impact is what I do in those invocations and and I'm lucky with in the opportunities I do get to do them. Um I got another one coming up, March Mayhem, I get to do that again. So uh that's what I really want want people to remember, but I am I am proud of like the very, very small part uh, uh, in, you know, whatever the fire service that I've had, right? So I I'm good with that, you know, but I, I want to have that impact at home long after I'm out of the fire service. So.
1: Well, that, uh, that made me feel incredibly
0: guilty for today. (laughs) You definitely. uh, Well, you know what, this is what I always say. Speaking of the invocations is like, I always feel somewhat bad about it because a lot of times, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say whatever I feel led to said, whatever i feel led to say um you know by god and so it's like a lot of times it's like that kind of message that is like it's tough to hear i always apologize to cody you know when i do the farmanship ones because it's like everyone is excited they're happy to be there and then i get up there and i'm just like just these fucking daggers sometimes you know and i'm like hey man we got it. We got to hear the truth when it's when it's there because that's the only way to get better. It's Just like training, it's no different. You know, you got to hear that truth, and sometimes it freaking hurts. And so I always feel bad when I do it, but it's like I don't have a choice. That's what it's, it's got to be because that's what that's what I'm getting in my in my heart too. You know, so it's like I can't be the only one. It's that's all of us because you know.
1: Well, I want to take the uh, the opportunity. That was. Amazing! I think there's a lot in that right there to unpack. A little, little too much. We could
0: get into in a, a three-hour podcast <laughs> yeah. if we start anyway, unpacking I'm, this. I'm all. here until tomorrow morning. Wait, we just got to be at the pizza place, right? right. So. Well, that's that's kind of
1: what I wanted to transition. Yeah. Now that uh, now that Chris Boyer walked in and sat down, I wanted to just talk a little bit about Tactics on Tap and why you came down. When we started this project, we didn't start Tactics on Tap. Obviously, it's been around. It's in several different areas, and we contacted them to see if we could, you know, bring it out here. And when we started the chapter out here in Reno, we sat down, uh, Micah, Brian, myself, and our dad, our other partner sat down and I said, I really want to do this. You know, I think this would be a great thing to do. We were actually having the meeting at Lamp Post. I said, I think this would be a great venue down here. You know, what what do you guys think? And they were like, dude, that sounds amazing. You know, how are we going to do it? And I said, let me call the Boyer man. So he was the first phone call we made. I called Chris Boyer and I was like, dude, you know, I mean, you know, Boyer the incredible passion and obviously his nagging skills i, said, <laughs> thank I you. said he would be the best guy to really spearhead this for h and h and kind of push this forward and he's done an incredible job chris i can't thank you enough for what you put into this and the effort that you have brought to this and really taken the ball and run with this and made made it what it is this is this is on you buddy on and uh he got you out here and i can't thank you enough for coming tonight and we got a Pretty big buzz. I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of the time some of these departments are, oh, we're going to have fucking 500 people there. <laughs> you know,
0: and then three guys show up, yeah. oh, bro, I don't know what happened. Everybody didn't come over. Yeah. Uh, I do Boom. the same thing, whether it was one person or, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we're gonna have 200.
1: A, I think we're going to have a pretty good turnout. But I want to say on this forum and in this podcast especially, because I know how much your uh, contributions to the fire service is meant to Chris as well. Thank you for
3: coming down here and doing this for us. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, mean, I don't know if you guys touched on at the beginning, but you slept in your truck in Winnemucca last night in a Flying J parking lot to be here. And if that doesn't say passion and willing to you know, come here and do this, and I just greatly appreciate it, man. You've been a pretty big influence on me since I came over from the wildland world in 2018. And so this is just an honor to finally meet you. and um, you know, you are still making an impact. You may not be getting on an airplane and flying places and teaching conferences, but you are still making a giant act and while you're still able to kind of achieve more of a work-life balance. So, uh, it's pretty cool to see kind of that transition to you, you know, in your life and that things are going well. And, um, yeah, I just can't, can't thank you enough. And this, this is pretty cool. It's humbling to have you here.
0: That's my pleasure. I don't, yeah. it might say passion. I don't know if it says intelligence, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Winnemucca is a great place. I didn't, I didn't mean that. Oh yeah. There <laughs> was, was. <laughs> a, there was a couple vans with their windows covered, sleeping right next to me all kinds of good stuff. like, oh, this is
1: sweet. Okay. Yeah. It's probably too cold for the lot lizards out there. Yeah. yeah right. Safe, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got a few of those comments when I left work last tour too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Watch out. I bet. But, uh, um, Yeah. It's, it's awesome to be here. What I, what I think is really cool. I haven't had a chance to speak about uh, or speak on a like tactic to on tap thing before, but, um, part of the reason too, why I w- wanted to come do it was because it's like, it reminds me of the old days of like pizza and beer, <laughs> you know, teach a class for burgers and beer, like, um, brothers in battle is incredible and that brothers in battle has made a big impact on the fire service. Um, And it's just this awesome machine that keeps going and and Cody keeps it going with his passion for the fire service. But I do sometimes miss those days of where it was just like we showed up and we had no idea who was coming to this class or where they were coming from or like we got all kinds of funny stories about these small town Idaho. Um, And it's just like literally like, okay, here's your hamburger, (laughs) you know, and no money, no nothing, you know, just um, I... I miss those days a little bit sometimes because it was just uh, like yeah it was just this pure passion for doing it. And so this is what is cool about tactics on tap. what I the only thing I'm worried about is the time limit. You know, I was <laughs> like no time limit, I was uh, like yeah. practicing on the way down here and I'm telling my wife I'm like I'm like I just keep adding shit to this freaking presentation. I'm like I think I could do a 3-hour class for sure easy. You know, so it's like, that's the only thing I'm worried about, but um yeah, it's cool. It's just, you know, the people that are going to show up to this type of thing want to be there and that makes it really easy when you're presenting something is like, you know, the people want to be there. Nobody got forced to go eat pizza and listen to someone talk about fire stuff like they chose to do it. So um if they don't like it, that's their fault. Like no one made them be there, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, uh, but yeah, I I thought it was really cool. And yeah, like I said, Chris, you know, we talked about it and then I didn't say anything really. I was like, Oh, I might do that and talk about it again and then talk about it again. It's like, how about December 20th? And I'm like, Oh shit, that's a real date. <laughs> you know. That's, doing that's not this doing figurative it. thing out in the future. Right. But, uh yeah. So funny story too, because, uh, when I think the first time Chris and I ever talked was right before he was going to uh Georgia smoke divers and, And he might've been going to hike and I was going to hike and I was like sitting on this dirt road, like not driving anymore. Cause I'm like, I'm going to lose cell service and just talking about Georgia. And so, yeah, now we're. Now we're here in reno nevada so yeah that's Kinda something cool. too you know you've always
3: been very approachable you know i've been following you and heard you on podcasts for a couple of years and i got the nod to go to georgia a month before I, the, the start date and i was like man i need as much info and beta as i, I can remember, i don't I know what I'm getting, i don't know what i'm getting into
0: <laughs> i remember that yeah you've
3: got a good memory i was backcountry skiing and so there <laughs> I, I was you know under, underneath the tree with two bars of service talking to you and <laughs> uh you know you want you didn't give away any secrets but you definitely helped me and then um you know what about a year ago and we were talking about putting on the search training, I called you again. And again, you were approachable and, you know, sent me every bit of info you had. And that's morphed into the finest hour search class. And It's been a pretty cool thing to have here. And it's been very well received. And so again, you just go in and, you know, and then you drove down through kind of shit weather last night, slept in your truck to do this. And so you've always been... Always been there never asked for anything in return. I want to so, be yeah.
1: clear to the listeners out there. We offered to get him a
0: room. <laughs> in Winnemucca. In Wittemucca. Yeah. They're, they're rapidly room. losing people willing to do tactics on town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he did not want that. Yeah. So. No, I, did, I didn't. And it, yeah, anybody who knows me knows exactly that there is no way that was happening. I'm surprised I'm staying in a hotel tonight. But Um. Uh, I was going to say something. Oh, yeah, it's like the sharing information thing in the fire service. Like people will get in a big thing of like, well, that the, you're not the one that came up with that and they're the one that came up with that. And and quickly when I started start studying uh, deeper into fire service history and like, um, you know, you can find uh, books from a couple hundred years ago that talk about door control and getting the nozzle to see the fire and going in through windows to search. And it's like, Okay, well no one is giving these guys credit and so it's like that nothing new under the sun idea and so it's just like that's what's awesome about search I think across the country is um with search there aren't very many people out there that are like that is my thing that I made up, you know, you need to give me credit. You just don't see that, which is probably why there's been such a You know, transformation, I think, at least from what you can see, right? Traveling and on social media and stuff like that, of like the fire service changing is uh the people who are really involved in search are people that are doing it because they're passionate about the job and nothing else. So they don't care. I tell people all the time, like, I'll give you the whole PowerPoint and not only do I not want you to give me credit, I don't want it because if something's wrong, I want them coming after you and not coming (laughs) after me. So like, here it is, put your name on it. Don't change anything. I don't care. You know, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. You know, you just want, it seems like search people just want to make the fire servers better and, and help us all like overcome, you know, seems like the way we were all taught how to do this one skill and, and be better at saving people's lives. So that's, what's really cool about search is you just don't see a lot of that like you didn't give that guy credit. Well, that guy didn't give, you know, whoever else credit that did it a hundred years ago. So it's like, who cares who gets credit for it? Let's just, if we're going to make the fire service better, let's just get the egos out of it and just do it. You know, um, nobody who's going around teaching hands-on classes, I don't think, I mean, is making a ton of money and is like this shark that's trying to gouge people for money. You know, it's just like, you need to give them credit. You're teaching a class and you're making all this money. Well, fuck up. Where, who? Yeah. Please email me how it yeah. works. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to yeah, make money. Or let yeah. me teach with you, you know, yeah. it's like, who's making, getting rich off teaching hands on classes. It's like, it doesn't exist. You Not know, a thing. Do the math. Yeah. And, if, <laughs> and if you, if you make a grab,
2: I don't think the citizen cares
1: who you learned it from or who got the credit that you learned a skill that helps save their life. Yeah. You know? So And that's it. That's something to talk about too and not to get off on another tangent. But with search, I think that don't get me wrong. Putting fire out is bitching. Venting a roof is bitching. There's it's fucking rad. But when you see a body get removed from a fire, if you've been on a fire where a grab was made, or if you've been, if you've made a grab, seeing a body get removed from a fire is so visceral and different than watching a fire go out or vent through a roof. It'll change you when, when you see it live. And then, if they live it'll really change it you know so i think that if anyone who's been involved whether it were they were the hands-on grabber or been involved in a call where it happened i think it changes them forever
0: yeah yeah it's that's one of uh yeah those questions of like you know um you'd rather be on the knob or like make a grab it's like there's no question you know to me it's you, know, you ask a kindergartner what does a firefighter do? And they say they save people. Well, how do you save people? You get in there and you get your hands on them, you know. And um, yeah. So uh, I was gonna, yeah, I was, I to say it because it may, reminded me of it, and I can't remember the lieutenant's name from Seattle, so I apologize for that. But like one thing that changed my my thought process about that and water and everything is this uh, lieutenant from Seattle said, you know, you go to a residential structure fire, the engine is there to support the truck doing the search. You go to a commercial fire, the truck is there to support the engine, getting the nozzle to the seat of the fire. And like that little statement just like says so much about our tactics of like, yeah, the most important thing in a residential structure fire is getting a primary all clear. If the house burns it down after that, that sucks. But at least we accomplished our number one mission, which we say is life safety, property conservation. We didn't do great at, you know, but at least we accomplished our number one mission. So to me, that's that's still a win in that regard. And then you switch that over to commercial fires, and it's like, well, searching a commercial fire is for most places just unrealistic. So you get up on top, or you cut doors, you open it up, you can put the fire out to try and save the most lives you can, and so that reminded me of that little dichotomy between like, uh, you know, having the nozzle on your hands or doing a search. Um, they go hand in hand sometimes, but for most of us, we're going to residential fires more than anything. And search should be the number one priority of what we're trying to do at those fires. Couldn't agree more.
2: Uh, I have no idea how long we've been going a while now, two hours and two minutes. There you go. Um, Well, thank you very much again. Uh, I, I I can't say enough about uh, how appreciative I am personally uh, for you coming and doing this. And uh, just to echo what these guys have said, you've always been uh, something that I've always looked to in the fire service uh, for information and uh, inspiration. So thank you very much for everything. Is there anything else you want to close out with or anything else you want to touch on?
0: Uh, I mean, I'll keep going if you guys want to <laughs> keep going. Like, this is a great little warm up for Tactics on Tap. So. Uh, we'll, we'll do it again this evening. But yeah, cool. you guys got anything? I'll we'll keep rolling. If not, then. No, I think we'll save I, it for tonight. I yeah. think we'll save it for
1: tonight, but uh, we're going to do round two. We'll do it over the phone, though, because I'm not going to take you away from your family. We're going to do it on a four day when your <laughs> wife's at work so I can get you on the path. I don't know. You guys got
0: any good rivers to raft around here? Carson River pretty okay, bad. There you go. <laughs> hey,
1: the trucky, man. Yeah,
2: trucky <laughs> river. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I don't know what you're uh, looking for if
1: you want to like see if you can <laughs> navigate through the needles and beaver hey, dams hey, it's, <laughs> it's
0: all class five then okay,
1: yeah. yeah it's high risk for sure if you come out of the boat you're gonna you're going home with something extra no doubt no doubt all right man well thank you very much we're gonna close it out and uh we're gonna kick ass tonight at tactics well,
0: thank you guys appreciate it thank you brian you should be a monster